Welcome to Replay Value, the podcast that deep dives into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm your host, Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. Today, we're going to be talking about David Fincher's brilliant adaptation of Czech Pollock's novel, the 1999 film, an instant cult classic, one of the ultimate guy movies, Fight Club. All right, and without further ado, let's jump into it and get into the production of the film and how it was made. Warren, I know you dug up some goodies about this. Yes, Fight Club, a movie about a man who forms a secret society of men who meet in order to find freedom and self-realization through beating one another into a pulp. Uh, you know, the movie's visceral, hard edge with levels of irony and commentary above all and below, uh, of course, the action. Um, but the author of the novel... Chuck Palahniuk, as I mentioned before, uh, being an adaptation of his book, he got this uh, idea after being beat up on a camping trip. Uh, when he returned to work, he noticed no one asked about his injuries. They asked just mundane things like, how was your weekend? And he, <laughs> he, you know, he basically concluded his coworkers didn't care enough about human interaction to connect with him on a, on a personal level. So it was his fascination with society's behaviors like that uh, that was the foundation of the novel. Yeah, that that is a crazy story to happen to the author. I, I feel like if I were to go to work though, and that were to you know something similar to happen to me, that people would be like, "Hey, what what the hell happened to you?" So I, I feel like it's more of a a unique situation. That is an outlier as far as it happening to him. But you know, all um, you know, all sympathy aside for him getting his ass kicked. Kind of glad it happened because if not, then. We wouldn't have gotten this wonderful film, which, given the the themes of it, was I, I don't know. I feel like I'm not alone in saying that a lot of college age uh, males, especially including myself, really latched onto this movie and, and and loved every aspect of it. Yeah, we both did. And the novel uh, was optioned by 20th Century Fox uh, producer Laura uh, Ziskin uh, purchased the rights for a mere ten thousand dollars. Yeah, actually, and to kind of uh, extrapolate that a, a little bit, the there were two producers that wanted to make this into a film, and they pitched the idea to 20th, 20th Century Fox. Originally, they, they didn't want it, um, so they actually got, um, they arranged unpaid screen readings of the film, and the they wanted to try to figure out how long the script would be. Uh, by reading the book and they ended up being the readings were upwards of six hours long and you know, nothing you could make a film into. So what they did is they actually kind of uh, pieced like kind of chopped up those readings into what they you know, thought would make a good film, pitched that to, uh, to Ziskin. And you know, like you said, she ended up uh, buying the rights for $10,000. I cannot believe that is crazy. That it was such a low amount of money. Yeah, especially uh, even then was not a lot of money, especially today. Absolutely not a lot of money considering what the novel led to. Um, Fincher was one of four directors considered. Uh, Peter Jackson, David Boyle, and Brian Singer, along with David Fincher, were the four finalists to, for whom was going to helm it. Uh, I did not know about Peter Jackson. That mm -hmm. is very, very uh, cool little fact there. I knew that Boyle and Singer were 
kind of pulled off to other projects uh, and, you know, clearly Fincher ended up winning the role. But that would have been, I would have loved to have seen the version with Peter Jackson. That's cool. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think they, each one of those directors would have brought something interesting. He was hired, David Fincher, uh, by Fox because of his enthusiasm for the story. And he, he compared it when he spoke with Fox, uh, compared it to films uh, Rebel Without a Cause and The Graduate. Um, its main theme being the conflict between a generation of young people and the value system of advertising, you know, and consumerism. Um, Fincher kept some of the author's uh, homoerotic tones uh, to keep audiences uncomfortable and to keep from them figuring out the ending. But even some of those tones weren't necessarily, they, they were, I guess, more overstated in the novel, but a lot of them weren't meant that way. Like kind of jump into one of the scenes where, they're talking about, you know, who they'd want to fight and Edward Norton's narrator characters brushing his teeth and pits in the bath. It's not meant to really be homoerotic. Uh, it's just more so two guys talking. You yeah, know. it just seems like the forming of a, a best friend friendship because each best friend you've had, you had that night where you were hanging out, you know, where you really, where the friendship was formed or that seed was really rooted that night uh, to your friendship. And that's what it feels like. So I didn't get those tones necessarily watching. It doesn't sound like you did either, but hearing David Fincher talk about it, reading about what he said, those are certainly tones as a filmmaker uh, that he intended to have um, in there. Oh. Uh, maybe it was, I was too naive in college when I first watched this movie, but even the scene where he says, um, you know, we're a generation of men raised by women. I wonder if, uh, another woman is really what we need. I felt like it was more of a personal reflection of responsibility rather than going to the arms of a man, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but interesting point about Fincher getting this uh, the job as director. Uh, when he was offered the job, he, he originally didn't want it. Because, yeah, I was just going to say he's pretty reluctant to take it. Yeah, because as I'm sure you came across this little tidbit, he had a kind of a bad taste in his mouth after his uh, previous job with that studio directing Alien 3, mm -hmm. which, you know, it came out uh, about seven years beforehand. It was like 1992, but it, it, he had such a bad experience that he almost did not direct Fight Club. But eventually he, I think they brought in um, uh, Bill Mechanic, or uh, I'm maybe getting the name wrong, but there was, the, he had, it was basically shown to him that he would have the creative freedom and to to do what he want to make the film that he would want to make without too much studio oversight so he ultimately agreed to do it and and that was a big reason why it was very important to him to have that oversight you know david fincher at that point uh fight club was his fourth feature film and alien three was his first uh feature film so he'd had a bad experience his first movie he'd ever made but david fincher as a director uh got to start directing rick springfield uh, music videos in the mid '80s. That's badass. Uh, that yeah, he, <laughs> he directed <laughs> a bunch of videos. Yeah, he directed a bunch of music videos, and he did a numerous other top artists. He did Madonna. Uh, I know he did a few Madonna videos, and, and there's numerous other ones that I won't have time to get into here. But that's really where he got to start as a director, and he continued to make uh, music videos up at, until uh, Fight Club. Uh, basically, after Fight Club, he just kind of started to focus exclusively on features and and and, and uh, television productions. Yeah, you kind of, at that point you you can you kind of graduated to the to the next level, so to speak. Um, now, this movie, um, whenever it was being written, it had a lot of problems with the script as far as 
um, transposing it from, or adapting it, I should say, from the novel form. Um, Fincher was a, a very much a proponent of wanting to have the narrator, Ed, Edward Norton's character, uh, as a voiceover throughout the film, and the studio was very, very much against that. They thought it was kind of a, kind of a, kind of a hack move, so to speak, to have a narrator. It's frowned uh, upon. It, it it's looked at as a, it's a way for a writer to kind of cheat because they're able to get out exposition without having to eloquently place it in a story between characters or in a scene where the audience has to figure it out. It's a thin margin of error when you do it. I mean, when it's done great on the highest levels, look at Amadeus. You know, even look at Forrest Gump, you know, narration can work. And even in television, you look like Dexter, a great television show with the narrative because it puts you in the character's head. Uh, so if it's, it can be done well, but as you said, it, it's, it, it generally is frowned upon and, and, and it's hard to pull off. But in this film, it works because. Oh, yeah. You, and Fincher, his point of view on it was this is, we, you almost need this. You derive a sense of humor or uh, 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 from the film through the narr- the narrator um, doing the voiceover. Without it, he said that it would just be kind of a sad, depressing story. It's like you, you have to have, it makes it relatable. So it's, it's a situation where it is used in the proper form, and it's not a cheap amateur trick. It's almost necessary to give the movie the tone that he was wanting to go for, and it, re- it, re- it really works. You can't imagine the film without it. Um, it, it does a great job. Yeah, and, and he certainly, the, the production worked very hard to achieve his vision. David Fincher is legendary for how many takes he'll do. I mean, there's stories about Mark Ruffalo talking about working on Zodiac with him where he, he did you know, 70, 80 takes, and you know, they'd be on take 50 or 60, and, and David Fincher would walk over, and Mark Ruffalo's like, oh, my God, he's going to tell me a note. I can make an adjustment. Maybe we can get out of here. He would come over, move an extra two feet, and then go back to Video Village. And he was like, oh, my God. Like, he's so particular with his vision. So he will take a lot of shots until he gets what he wants. And for Fight Club, filming lasted 138 days. That's they filmed, insane. That is insane. That's a very long shoot. Uh, 300 scenes, 200 locations on 72 different sets. They shot more than 1,500 rolls of film and shot mostly in and around Los Angeles. But the 1,500 rolls of film, that's three times the, na- the average uh, for a movie. And to kind of put that in uh, to perspective so it's a little bit easier to understand as far as terms that I think everyone can, can kind of get and go along with, um, even those not in the film industry, would be that the original budget of this film was $23 million, and the final production budget was $63 million. So it kind of goes hand in hand. You said they used about triple the amount of film. Well, the budget was triple what they originally thought it would be. And a lot of films do go over budget, but this is a situation where this was an extraordinary situation. Most most movies don't go triple their budget. Yeah, and well, and it took them time to get that budget. Uh, the film, uh, the, uh, Fincher edited the film for the studio to screen, and they hated it. I uh, didn't think there was uh, uh, an audience for the film, and they delayed the film's release. They ended up getting additional backing to finish the film uh, and to get Fincher's vision, which is a big part why he agreed to work with Fox. But even then, Fox was fighting him a little bit and making this movie, um, as studios typically tend to do. Uh, but they, the studio, which is really interesting to me, marketed this movie to UFC and fight fans as an action movie. 
<laughs> it's crazy the links that studios will go to to try to sell a movie to the audience they think that it should have. Fox released the movie October 15th, 1999. That was in the U.S. Uh, final cut was 138 minutes, so it is a bit long, uh, just almost two and a half hours. Opening weekend, it finished number one for the weekend, 11 million. Which is really, I'm, I know it's 99, but and that's another thing. It's like, you know, this movie came out in 99, like you said, but when I think back on it, it almost feels like a 2000s film, you know, and granted it was at the end of the millennium, but it, it, I very much feel like it's like a 2000, 2001 film. Anyway, I digress. Well, David Fincher's audacious camera work and just uh, that distinctive uh, anesthetic still feels very fresh. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a great point. It does. It, it's doesn't age poorly maybe some of the fashion choices do and uh well sure for the times though but uh box office went on to gross a hundred uh just over a hundred million dollars worldwide 100.8 uh million dollars worldwide how much would that be in today's dollars phil do you have that number i don't for worldwide however it did gross 37 million dollars domestically which is for a lot of you know for most of the movies we talk about on this podcast that's a fairly low number uh, but it, it truly was one that gained a following and became a cult hit, you, you know, with especially upon the DVD release of it. But in today's dollars, that $37 million would actually translate to $66.7 million. So still not that great. I mean, you think about uh, $100.8 million worldwide, like you said, on a budget of $63 million. One might almost say that this is kind of borderline flop, you know? Yeah, it, it's mildly ironic that a film that very much warned against mass market consumer products was reliant upon VHS and DVD players to reach a wide audience because <laughs> it really, it had an afterlife after it came out. That's, yeah, I didn't really think about it that way, but I mean, this movie also probably made a good bit of money on the product placement that it had in the film too. There's like a Starbucks cup and or logo in every single scene almost, so... Yeah, yeah, they, they have did. that. Yeah, um, but the film was fiercely debated by critics. There were concerns that the film would incite copycat behavior, like with Clockwork Orange, and it did, which we'll talk about later in the episode. Um, but you know, but yeah, Roger Ebert even said after rewatching the film, I admire its skill even more and its thought even less. So, <laughs> in some ways, there were definitely some. They admired the, the the craftsmanship of the filmmakers and how the film was made, and is very watchable. But again, the the tones of the film and you know how it can affect people. It's kind of that same debate with violent video games. Like I guess you know you could talk about Grand Theft Auto, where it it, it can. Uh, some people will try to hold it responsible for people doing bad things. Um, yeah, but I mean the, the the video game, you know, that whole debate has been debunked by numerous studies that it has no effect. This is a little bit different in the sense that I'm not going to say it directly correlates to it, but people are inspired by movies and and seeing this done, and the, to the point to where I believe that you know I hate to you know jump ahead here, but um, you know they were actually using I think the name Project Mayhem for some real life. Um, yes. Yeah, they were. And I'm sure people created their own fight clubs too. So there, there was that. It goes beyond the little more than a video game comparison. But Sure. But, the, the, you know, the, no one could deny the craftsmanship of the film, as I said. And it did have one Oscar nomination for best effects, uh, sound effects editing. Um, 
and even with the opening credit scene, you can know right away, you're like, wow, this is interesting. I want to see where this goes. 99, an amazing year uh, uh, with, with movies that came out. We'll touch on a couple big, big titles that came out that year. American Beauty, Best Picture winner. Uh, mm-hmm. Sixth Sense, Matrix, yep. Toy Story 2, American Pie, Iron Giant, Office Space, Austin Powers, Galaxy Quest, a replay value great, uh, which we will cover that film. Uh, Big Daddy, Star Wars, Episode One, Phantom Menace. Boo! So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Didn't uh, like uh, being, I think Bing John Malkovich came out that year as well. Yeah, a lot, lot of good, lot, lot of good movies came out that year, and a book that dominated the New York Times bestseller list: uh, Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban. Personal favorite of mine. Uh, you know, I love those films. I love the, the books and the films, I should say. Let's get into the casting of the film to kind of figure out how the ensemble of characters came together. Uh, Warren, let's start off, of course, I guess with Tyler Durden. How did Brad Pitt get this role? Well, the studio wanted a major star. Uh, that's really... That's a simple answer. <laughs> yeah, that's... And Pitt was a red hot. Uh, you know, he'd been a movie star really since Legends of the Fall. He just became white hot overnight. And Brad Pitt, you know, was looking for his next movie after Meet Joe Black was a complete flop. And so um, David Fincher uh, got him to agree to meet him for a beer, and uh, they talked about it. And from that meeting, Brad Pitt agreed to read the screenplay, and the studio ended up offering Pitt $17.5 million to take the role. Uh, interesting uh, point about, at least I thought it was, about Pitt getting the part is that it was actually between – uh, as far as who was going to come in for a read, it was actually between him and Russell Crowe. And one producer wanted Crowe, and the other more senior producer wanted Pitt. And, and it was seniority is the only reason that Pitt was brought in instead Yeah, the producer Russell vetoed Russell Crowe, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, Fincher was definitely on board with Brad Pitt, and for good reason. He did excellent in, the, in, in this film. Um, and he really committed, you know, he had his, he even went as far as to have, and it's, we had another episode where Nitro did this, he had his tooth chipped by a dentist for filming. Well, the, are you referring to Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber? Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, and Brad Pitt did that for Fight Club. He didn't want his teeth to be perfect in this film. Well, Jim Carrey, he had had it happen in elementary yeah, school. Yeah, so he just had it, the, 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 the cap The crown, removed. the cap yeah. removed, yeah, yeah. So, but the, uh, Pitt did do it for this film because he, he's like, I know I look perfect, so let me fuck myself up a little bit and then he got it you know fixed and you restored after the after shooting wrapped up mm-hmm. and uh you know edward norton uh who plays the narrator is what he's referred to on cast sheets but interesting norton's interpretation of the character is that jack was his name is because throughout the film he's like i'm jacks and he will say a phrase um, so they really think Jack is his character name, but it's even been argued when he's reading an article, he he gets that from the article he's reading. I'm Jack. So they got a bunch of these. I'm Jill's. So there's different arguments there, but Edward Norton has said himself as an actor, his interpretation was, is that, uh, his character's name was Jack and Fincher, uh, wanted him, uh, uh because of his performance in the people versus Larry Flint. Hmm. That's, uh, I've actually never seen that movie, but good movie. I'm sure Norton, he went on a streak there where it's like every single film he was in was awesome for like 10 years. Like his yeah, first 10 run. films was like, they were fantastic. And this film, he, um, a little bit less of a, 
pay amount than Pitt. He was, I think, had a salary of two point five million, which, oh my gosh, it's such a low amount of money. I, I know, but com- you know, compared to Brad Pitt, uh, given that they were both the principal actors and Norton had more lead time, uh, or excuse me, more screen time, uh, you would think that it would be a little higher, but that just kind of shows you where Norton was at that point in his career. Well, he career. had just come off filming American History X, and he is, oh, he is just phenomenal in American History X, but he had a lot of muscle, so he did cut a lot of weight for this uh, to, to get down to a more normal frame. Uh, that, that's true. He did do quite the transformation. Um, now, the studio wanted a little – kind of a flashier name, someone almost on the level of Brad Pitt so they could sell two big stars. They were leaning almost towards like Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Or Sean Penn. Yep, he was considered uh, as well. Which, nothing against those two. I think Sean Penn especially would have done you know, phenomenal in this role, but this is Edward Norton's part. And uh, that, you know, that kind of unsuspecting um, character that, that you, you you don't see him coming around the corner to, to act in this way in the movie, but uh, he really, really sells it very well. Just a, a great job, a great performance of acting. Yeah, he uh, just perfectly cast for the part. I mean, it was when we get into the later segment where we cast the film, it's really hard to recast the part because he's it, it, they're so each character has such a level of specificity to them. Uh, mm-hmm. a behavior and a type they have to be for it to really work and be pulled off. And Edward Norton fits that perfectly. So, um, and I think part, I think part of the reason that, that they, they relate or they kind of get into the characters so well is that Fincher actually worked with Pitt and Norton. He consulted them on the script when they were reworking it. They, the script mm-hmm. ended up going through like five revisions or something like that. But he he wanted them to have input on the the story itself, uh, the adaptation, and their characters. You know, Brad Pitt felt his character was too one dimensional, so they, you know, they change up some things to kind of make him more ambiguous. So uh, there there was was definitely input from from Norton uh, on his character as well. Yeah, and and talking about those two, you you know, another major pillar character of this film, Marla Singer, played by uh, Helen Bonham Carter, and she based her performance on Judy Garland in the later stages of her life. Um, really? I did not read that. That's that's really cool. Yeah, when you, awesome. when, you, when you think about, you know, uh, her interpretation and, and her character smoked in every scene practically when you see her. And she even got sick from smoking so much filming scenes. Um, but the studio, uh, you know, wanted a name as they typically do, and Fincher wanted Carter. Uh, the studio actually wanted Reese Witherspoon, and she was someone they really wanted for the part. I don't know if you came across that or not. I did. Fincher that thought she was too young for the role. Um, I also read that Fincher wanted Janine Garofalo for the part before he got uh, Helena Bonham Carter involved, but she turned it down because she felt uh, had the the sexual tones were too overt in the film, so she she had, she wanted nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some other names I thought about Courtney Love. I know a writer, uh, but Reese Witherspoon ultimately ended up turning down the part because she felt the role the film was just too dark, so she didn't want to do it. Uh, so Fincher got his wish, and he got to cast Helen Bonham Carter as Marla Singer. And um, uh, all three of the main leads in this film, which we'll agree those are the three main leads, 
uh, all the actors do a tremendous job in, uh, in the movie. Yeah, and this is one when we do the recasting part where it was very difficult because this film, like many of the others we do, holds a special place in my heart, and it's very difficult to think about any other actor in these roles. And it de- definitely doesn't seem like it came out almost 20 years ago. That's so uh, that's insane. Bonham Carter and Edward Norton actually considered visiting real support groups for the terminally ill, you know, in preparation for the character, but they decided not to due to the, you know, uh, nature of the film that they didn't feel it would be appropriate. Yeah. That, that kind of, that would have been fucked up. I, I can see that. So it's a little different if you're doing like a biopic, uh, or some, you know, based on a true story or, or really shedding light on a human condition. But, you know, the film isn't about that. Yeah, they made the right choice and probably not going. Yeah, that that was definitely the right choice. Hopefully they had somebody saying, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. But um, I like to think they came to that conclusion themselves. Um, real quick, uh, I'll talk about casting. We don't have to get into the details of it. But, you know, of course, we had uh, Meatloaf a Day uh, as Robert Paulson, uh, a.k.a. Bob, a.k.a. Bitch Tits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, a little fun fact: those were not his real bitch tits. In case he hadn't figured it out, I mean, I know Meatloaf is is a, is a bigger guy. You know, he's uh, he's a husky fella, but he actually had to wear a ninety pound fat suit or harness uh, to get the the bitch the bitch tit look. And given his height, and they they do camera tricks in movies for actors that are too short. Tom Cruise is a famous example, but. He actually had to wear eight-inch lifts while he was in a scene with Edward Norton just to kind of give that more towering appearance. Um, so I thought yeah. that was that well. Was they also cool. the the fat suit was filled with birdseed to give the impression of sagging flesh, or as Edward Norton refers to him, bitch tits. He, and if you notice, real interesting about that character, I want to point this out real quick. He's the only character in the Fight Club who breaks one of the rules of Fight Club. He fights with his shirt on. If you watch huh. the scenes, all the other characters, you have to take your shirt off. That's part of the rules if you read the list. And he, leave, and they had to leave the shirt on to cover the, the fat suit. Huh. I never even thought about that. That's, <laughs> you busted him there. That's, that's good. Um, and then uh, before we move on to our favorite scenes and quotes, um, wanted to touch quickly on the music of the film. It doesn't have a traditional score. Uh, Fincher actually did not want a band that had any type of uh, experience doing a film score because he didn't feel like they could adequately um, tie the tones of the film to, or the themes, I should say, of the film together. Um, he originally wanted Radiohead to do the music, but uh, they were unable to, so he chose the Dust Brothers, which have that you know infamous opening, you know, the title sequence. So they they do the song for that. It's probably the most well known, but there's a lot of interesting little quirks and noises that you don't really think about it having a film score, but it does if you if you pay attention to it. Uh, so uh, a very, very cool choice on Fincher's part. I really, really like the decision he went with there. Uh, helped, I think, sell the movie, uh, the theme of the themes of the movie more than, um, you know, a, like, like I said, a traditional score. And then, of course, the uh, the climax, the epic climax of the film when all the building, the credit card buildings are falling down, you have the Pixies, Where Is My Mind? You know, uh, it was already a, a very popular song, but that launched it into cult status um, even more so uh, a, 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 by having it in that scene. It's just um, a great, great 
piece of scenery, great piece of music. Yeah, that's really interesting about the music. I did not know that David Fincher didn't hire a traditional composer to score the film. Uh, now, moving on to best scenes and best quotes, or our favorite scenes, our favorite quotes of the film. Now, this is one of those replay value movies that it's just made, the film is designed by proxy to be rewatched. This one was extremely difficult to pick my favorite scene and favorite quote because it's it's full of them more so than any other film we've done to date on the podcast so i'll go ahead and start with my favorite scene of the film i won't go through any nominees because my nominee is the entire film uh when i rewatched it recently there was a clear-cut winner and that was edward norton aka the narrator his fight with himself in his boss's office are you threatening me? No. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. I have a better solution. You keep me on the payroll as an outside consultant. And in exchange for my salary, my job will be never to tell people these things that I know. I don't even have to come into the office. I can do this job from home. Who, who the fuck do you think you are, you crazy little shit? Security? I am Jack's smirking revenge. Oh. Oh. What the hell are you doing? Oh. And right then, at our most excellent moment together. Yeah, interesting you picked that scene. I almost picked that scene. Uh, it was one of my nominees. And as you said, really tough. And most of the movies we talk about, we always say that. So many great scenes, really tough to pick one. Uh, I, will, I, do, I do have a, a slew of nominees. Uh, other ones that I'll mention real quick, uh, where uh, the narrator, uh, or Edward Norton, escapes the police station. That is a really good one. I, uh, I wasn't in my nominees, but... Um... I don't think I consider that one strongly enough, but thinking back, that's that's a great choice. It, if you would have gone with that one, mm, yeah. Uh, the apartment layout guide—it's a real quick sequence where he shows the narrator Edward Norton's apartment, and then he—that was my runner-up. I really, really loved how creative that was when they showed the depth of it. It's very, very cool. And the movie's got a couple montages. Uh, the travel montage where he's trying to figure out who Tyler Durden is. He's whipping around all over the country. Uh, Tyler and the narrator Edward Norton's first fight outside of Lou's Tavern. Very good one. And where the owner also, Lou, visits the club downstairs. That's also a really great scene. Uh, and there's another great montage, actually, I almost forgot to mention, is where Fight Club's really being formed, where the guys are on the porch and they're kind of training them, and it shows how this idea becomes a reality slowly but surely, and I really love that sequence as well. Yes. But my winner is when Edward Norton, the narrator, Jack, whatever you want to call him, meets Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden on the airplane. You know why they put oxygen masks on planes? So you can breathe. Oxygen gets you high. In a catastrophic emergency, you're taking giant panic breaths. Suddenly you become euphoric, docile. You accept your fate. It's all right here. Emergency water landing 600 miles an hour. Blank faces, calm as Hindu cows. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Did 
But you know, if you mixed equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm. No, I did not know that. Is that true? That's right. One can make all kinds of explosives using simple household items. Really? If one was so inclined. I see why you went with that one, because it essentially launches the second phase of the entire movie from that point on. It's everything else has been purely introductory at that point and establishing Edward Norton's character. So very, very good choice. I love it. Yeah. And it, it, it's like, the you know, all the, the, the best scenes are for, you know, it's really the two leads is when Pitt and Norton together. And you want to see those two characters hanging out. We want them to be friends. We want them together. That's why part of me is like when Brad Pitt's character disappears, you know, with what, 40 minutes left in the movie. Part of me is a little bummed about it. You're like, oh man, I kind of like them being a tandem. You know, it's almost like when you watch Breaking Bad, you want Walt and Jesse to be working together. That's you know, a good you, comparison, yeah. Yeah, you, you want those two characters together. So, um, it, really enjoyable any two, uh, any scene those two are in. Uh, but yeah, when they first meet, uh, that's that's got to be my favorite. And that's actually going to segue us into our favorite quotes. Uh, my favorite quote actually comes from that scene when they, uh, when Edward Norton's making his spiel about single-serving friend, everything on a plane is single-serving, even the. Well, I get it. It's very clever. Thank you. How's that working out for you? What? Being clever. Great. Keep it up, then. It was difficult. I battled with the quotes back and forth a lot. Um, you know, the things you own end up owning you. And uh, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. Very, very memorable quotes. So mine is more of an exchange, but I just love it so much. And I've actually tried to be clever myself and use it in real life conversation. It never works out and I come off like a pretentious dumbass, but I still love that quote. Yeah, great quote. Uh, And you mentioned another one of my favorites um, uh, where the things end up owning you. A lot of philosophical phrases and quotes in this movie. Some of my nominees... First rule of Fight Club. You do not talk about Fight Club. Uh, Bob has bitch tits. Um, you're shooting at it, your imaginary friend that, that where he almost shoots the bomb. Uh, it, you know, and, and Brad Pitt kind of has a comedic moment where he kind of flips out about it. And I love this line, and I don't know who this guy is, and I don't know if he's been in anything since. The guy in, what is it, the airport security terminal when he's on the phone. Nine times out of ten, it's an electric razor. Every once in a while. It's a dildo. Of course, it's company policy never to imply ownership in the event of a dildo. We have to use the indefinite article, a dildo, never your dildo. I don't own. And then he like cuts him off. He's like, shh, 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 before he can say anything. I think that guy's a a comedian. I've seen him somewhere else before. Uh, He does seem familiar. Yeah, I love that quote. Uh, You punch me in the ear. Um, and it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Uh, kind of one of those philosophical quotes you picked uh, with um, the things you own end up owning you. But my favorite quote, and it's more of a monologue in the movie, is when Pitt's addressing the Fight Club. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. We're very very pissed off one thing about that quote is whenever he's saying you know we've all thought we'd be movie stars and rock gods as he says that he is actually looking at jared leto's character walking by him you know which is 
ironic because Jared Leto is a you know a, a famous musician with Thirty Seconds to Mars. So it, I was actually going to point that out. Yeah, it is kind of kind of ironic. We're going to move on to my favorite part of the podcast, uh, and I always say it's my favorite section. It's if the movie were made today, who would we cast? in in the these principal roles so let's go ahead and start out um i like it better whenever we start with like the supporting cast and let's move up to the principal actors so i'll kick it off to you let's start out with bob aka robert paulson aka bitch tits um who did you have for that role for bob i casted glenn fisher who is from he was on barry he played the russian mob boss with noho hank um mm, okay billions uh he's in that he plays axelrod's lawyer and he also is most notably played the villain in the first season of true detective yes that's where i would know him from he makes quite a turn to the russian mobster in in barry but i like that maybe like I, i'd have to i don't have to see more of him and some things to see his range like bob has a lovable quality to him whereas that guy, he plays creepy really, really well, and he's very sinister, but you know, Bob is just like, you, you actually do want to give him a hug. You can see the camaraderie. Yeah, I can see what, yeah, yeah that's a good point, because even Glenn Fisher is good of an actor in the range he does have, which he could pull it off. Uh, he's got a more, he comes off more capable, as opposed yes. to meatloaf, you feel like you need to help him. Yeah, like whenever, he, like the, the reminds me of the scene whenever they're trying to start Project Mayhem, and Bob comes up on the porch and yeah, and he starts you know, walking away. <laughs> he's like, "You're too fat. Get out of here, fatty, <laughs> or whatever." You know, he in, basically insults the, the shit out of him. But yeah, your, your tits are too big. Um, it, I, for for Bob, my choice would be Kyle Gass. I don't know if you know who that is. He is from Tenacious D. He's um the guy that is in the band with Jack Black. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I wanted to kind of go with another musician. He's a little goofy, but I feel like uh, he he could play that part. I, I'd be interesting. I'd be interested to see it. Has he done any acting outside of the Tenacious D? Or are you just eh, you know? I mean, there's, <laughs> Meatloaf hasn't done a whole lot of acting. So no, nah, he he had a career he pursued as an actor. He was trying to be taken seriously as an actor. That's what he was in and the um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah. So so did you cast Angel Face? I did. Uh, you go ahead and go first, though, with Angel Face. I want to see what you said. Angel Face. Okay, I went with um, Harry Styles. Oh, okay. From, uh, That's one, really one, good. Yeah, from One Direction, and then uh, Dunkirk. He, he had a Dunkirk. Had a yeah, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's excellent. I, I, I really had a tough time picking this one. So much so that, given even though it's twenty years later, if I were to cast Angel Face. I would cast Jared Leto because that man is just too beautiful. I can't imagine anyone else with a more, you know, uh, that mm. more fits the scene where. Here, here, uh, here's the problem with that, though. Jared Leto is an Oscar winning movie star, rock star actor now. He's not going to play a part that small. Eh, I mean, you know, eh, I, I, I like it, though. It, it's just too, I, it's too difficult for me. Fight, to see Fight, Club got, Fight Club got him on the upswing. Uh, on, uh, he was on the rise when they got him in that. Yeah, it's more of a cop-out just picking him again, but I like it. Yeah, whatever. All right. <laughs> so, uh, No, my, the, the boss. You got to tell me your boss. 
The, I didn't the, do the, it. I didn't, you, didn't, you didn't cast the narrator's boss? Uh, from the car insurance? The, your favorite the, scene when he acts like the boss beats him up. I, I didn't cast it. I didn't. You you say yours. I'll see if I can think of somebody real quick. Right, Richard Schiff from West Wing and Man of Steel. That doesn't help me out at all. Who is that? He's a character actor. you got to know his face. Richard Schiff. Um, he... Um, He's been in a bunch of stuff, but he's really known for West Wing. Uh, I think he'd be awesome as the boss. He's got a, a great kind of um, a natural demeanor that fits that character very well. Because that character does have some funny scenes. Yeah, I got nothing. I mean, that's that's a. I, I'm going to look that guy up. Sounds really good, but I. I sorry, I didn't pick pick one for. for that's that, all right. That, I, t- I tend to overcast. I always cast a few more people than you do. So y- you do. Yeah, it's yeah. okay. But all right, let's move on to the principal actors, uh, Marla Singer. My choice uh, for this, and this was a little tough. Um, we're getting into the realm where it's very, very difficult to recast, but I like my choice. I picked uh, Aubrey Plaza. Huh. Yeah, that's really good. I think, wow, she'd be great in that. If you've ever seen Legion, uh, her her role in that is very, very different from anything. She, you know, a lot of people know her from Parks and Rec, but I, I really, really feel like she would, able to nail this part so uh who, who did you have uh, as marla singer i love that casting um really yeah she's she'd be really good in that um i would pick emma stone oh really emma stone Whew. man I, I, she's I, really good with witty dialogue and witty exchanges especially remember easy uh easy a she's really great uh i would like to see her in it and She's got the full range uh, of the actor rainbow to play pretty much any color she she wants or what's called for in the script. So I'd like to see what she do with it. I don't know. I just it's hard for her for me to see her to to buy into her as great as an actress as she is to buy into her as someone that you could believe to be that downtrodden and you know on the verge of suicide. Essentially, they you know I, I just it, I, that would. Re- it would take a lot for me to see Emma Stone in that type of role. She could pull it but off. If anyone could, yeah, she'd be one of them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right, so moving up to, let's go ahead and do the narrator. Uh, yeah, you know, Edward Norton, you know, Jack, whatever. We everyone knows who we're talking about by now. Who did you have as uh, the narrator? Well, I and we talked about this before. This film called for a level of specificity where I didn't and a, a range of nominees for each character didn't come to me. Uh, it, it, so for each one of the, if you've noticed, I, I just have the winner or the person I would cast. And for the narrator, I would cast Sam Rockwell. Yes, that's, yes, that's a very, very, very good choice. Um, he almost has, yeah, he almost has like an Ed Norton type of. A little off a little bit, you know, not quite the alpha, but could be, you know, he just has this quality to him where he can play, you know, the very thing you said you couldn't, but it would be harder for you to buy into Emma Stone being the dawn, the, you know, the downtrodden character. Um, Sam Rockwell plays, play that in spades. Yeah. Uh, that, I, I really, really love that. I wish I, I wish I would have thought of that. I like my choice, um, but I, I like yours um, also a lot. Who do you got? I picked Paul Rudd. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is, I don't. I can't really even see him doing this type of movie. 
Yeah, I know that's the thing is that, I don't know, I almost could, you know, kind of see a self-deprecating, like, granted, you know, he probably wouldn't be able to now that he's in a Disney Marvel machine, but he, I feel like he would have the range to do it and he would be unexpected and you would be able to see, I don't know, he might be too lovable. I like Sam Rockwell better, but I I, I, I just want to see Paul Rudd do this. Maybe with him and Kyle Gass and Aubrey Plaza. Maybe I'm doing like a comedy version, a dark comedy version. Of you Fight are. You're, you're going into the comedic <laughs> range here. Uh, um, okay, so Tyler Durden, the final character we're going to cast, played by Brad Pitt. Who do you have as your Tyler Durden? Uh, it was really tough. I did have one nominee for this one. I, I was kind of leaning towards like, um, a Ryan Reynolds. Um, and then I thought maybe it would be somebody bigger. Like, well, what if we saw somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio in this role? But I ultimately went with James Franco. Okay. Um, I mean, he could do it. Uh, to me, Tyler Durden is the personification of the embodiment of the perfect version of you. So, He's got to really be like really, really, really ridiculously good looking. So for me, I, I went a different direction with it. And it's interesting you mentioned him still as Angel Face because today I would cast Jared Leto as my Tyler Durden. You fucking bastard. Oh, my gosh. That's that's good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Because I and, and you think about this. I don't know if you've seen the new Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. His character is very similar to that. And he's at a point now in his career. Not only does he have the, um, you know, the 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 household name where he would he, the studio would give him a role like that. He did get cast as the Joker uh, after all. But he's really good with doing significant dialogue where he's speaking of importance and philosophical, th- and that's very much this movie. So I feel like he would play into that very well. Hmm. Okay. All right. I mean, that's. I like it. I can see it. Uh, I'm at your, once again, I feel like your picks are better than mine, your castings, but I, I, I would like to see my version of the movie too with these actors. Yeah. These, it can be a completely like, different film. It'd be a comedy movie. Seth Rogen would probably produce it. And <laughs> we're going to start, you know, arbitrarily awarding like winners on the casting choices. I mean, we'll have to agree on it out of all of the ones that we did. Uh, I think that the only one that I would beat you on is Aubrey Plaza over yeah. in the stone. Cause she's done the, some serious work. So I could see her doing this kind of movie. Yeah. Okay. Let's move it on to uh fan theories. Uh, another one of my, my, my fun uh, favorite segments to do. And there are several fan theories for fight club. It kind of surprised me when I was doing some research on it. So I'm just going to touch base on a couple of them. If you're interested in more, Get on the internet, go on YouTube. You'll be able to find some. Uh, so one I want to run by you real quick, just because it ties into uh, an earlier episode that we did. Actually, our very first episode, Ferris Bueller. There is a theory that. <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> go ahead. There is a theory that in Ferris Bueller that. Uh, Ferris is a figment of Cameron's imagination and that his adventures with Ferris and Sloan as they go around in Chicago are, you know, again, they're just all in his head. Um, he's not really doing it. He is staying home from school. He's sick in bed. He never gets up to do anything. That's a popular fan theory. <laughs> so in uh. this Fight Club theory, they're saying that Ferris actually, or Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a prequel <laughs> to Fight Club. <laughs> 
So, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of read a snippet of the theory of, of the theory, but, um, Norton's narrator character is actually Cameron that is all grown up and he's making up a new imaginary friend. Um, <laughs> in high school, um, you know, Cameron was depressed. He had an over- overbearing father. He created the alter ego Ferris. The, you know, think of Tyler and the narrator, like basically sure. your perfect you, you're, you know, you just mentioned that. Um, now Ferris, you know, they go off and do these things, but Ferris ceases to exist and leaves Cameron after the, the Ferrari incident and crashes, you know, Cameron kind of grows as a character. Um, so, uh, when Cameron's father, I don't know how they got this from the theory. Cameron's father finds the state of the Ferrari. He has a fatal heart attack. So Cameron vows to never act out of line again. That's why he gets a straight laced job investigating car crashes. And then he basically goes through his life until he gets to the point to where he's, in a similar state and creates a new alter ego that is the perfect version of him, Tyler Durden. And, you know, this vision was fully realized in 2010. There was a mashup video. It was dubbed Ferris Club, and it was a, uh, it was a, a cut of Bueller, Ferris Bueller and Fight Club. Features Ferris as Tyler Durden and Cameron as the narrator, as you said. What? Are you yes. kidding me? Yeah. I did not know about that. That I have to, I have to watch this now. Okay. Uh, another one I want to talk about is um, this is a little more out there, but it ties into yet another episode we've already done on Reads Play Value. Uh, the first part of it is that um, it's called the Calvin and Hobbes theory. If you remember the comic strip, the comic you know when we were growing up, the little boy Calvin mm-hmm. and his tiger Hobbes. Um, this is basically you know Calvin being um, Ed Norton is a character is a, a grown up version of Calvin. Um, in the classic comic, Calvin's a kid. He makes an imaginary friend out of a stuffed animal, but by the time he reaches seventh grade, uh, he's forced to face reality and, you know, he's old enough now where he doesn't believe in Hobbes anymore. He kind of forgets his best friend, so to speak. So, you know, growing up though, that pain is still there. That bitterness, it turns him to the insomnia ridden character that Ed Norton plays. Hmm. Now, uh, years later though. When Tyler Durden comes about, that's actually just an evolved version of Hobbs the Tiger. But because he's an adult, he wouldn't accept an animal as an imaginary friend. It would have to be an actual person for him to buy into it. Um, And there's one thing that was an interesting selling point. If you go back into the comic, uh, Calvin and Hobbs, they have an organization that's men's only or boys only. It's called Gross, G-R-O-S-S, which stands for Get Rid of Slimy Girls. Uh, it is an exclusive boys only club <laughs> and that at the beginning of the meetings, Hobbs will read aloud the minutes from the previous meeting and that they were actually were fights between the members in that club. So hmm. uh, very, very, very interesting connection there. I like the fan uh, theories where they connect movies. It's it, it another episode we did where you talked about or where we talked about um Harry from Dumb and Dumber, yeah. Speed Speed and Dumb and Dumber being connected, uh, that character, uh, and yet again here with uh, uh, Ferris Bueller and Fight Club. And the other connection that it has is that Calvin and Hobbes theory goes deeper, and then they applied it to The Dark Knight, which is the other episode we did. And at the end of the movie, when the narrator, when Ed Norton shoots himself, rather than killing Tyler, he actually kills himself. The imaginary friend takes over, and over time... His personality, he evolves into the Joker. He has a penchant for explosives, anarchy, mayhem. And um, 
and he actually has this identity and he doesn't have that you know ed norton character holding him back anymore he's free to become the ultimate version of uh tyler and ends up becoming um the joker that's a little bit more of a stretch but um, they both have sizable armies of disposable minions both are unstable they have an aptitude of for explosions they both have facial scarring and both love anarchy so yeah just kind of kind of interesting there so I, I again i just like the ones that try to tie into different movies yeah that's that's what i was saying i really enjoy those uh that that was it there's more but again you can get online you can read a ton of them some of them are even wackier than that i picked out a couple of the good ones yeah, those are those are always interesting. Uh, and we'll move on to the final uh, segment here, the legacy of the film. Philip, uh, what did you uh, come up with uh, looking at the uh, the cultural impact and influence that this film has had? As far as you know, what it had on culture and society, I felt like you did see um, a lot more movies that ha- try to have the twist ending. They may not have sold it as well. And really, when you go back and watch this movie, if you were it's almost the expecting the twist was almost subconscious. Like you go back and watch it now and there's so many clear signs that, that, that he is not, or assume that Tyler and him are the same person, but more the influence that it left on me, uh, it personally is where I feel like it, it, it had the most lasting impact and not only me, but a whole generation of young men. And, and I will say some, some women too, this is more, definitely a dude film do you remember that segment on tnt where they would have a special movie they play every night you want them tbs has them movies for guys who like movies i mean i would be remiss to say that i you know didn't watch that and indulge it from occasion back before the age of netflix uh and dvrs and whatnot and on demand but this is definitely a movie that fits into that category uh i'm you know, it, it, it's, again, very much a dude film. I know plenty of women who like it, too. My wife being one of them, she loves Fight Club, was very excited when we got to sit down and rewatch this film, uh, you know, and, and to prepare for the episode. But I will say that it inspired, eh, not necessarily inspired, but it, it did influence and it felt like it may had a connection with a lot of uh, young men in, the, in their early 20s. Uh, they felt like they related to the movie. And looking back on it now, I was an idiot to think that because none of the, you know, <laughs> principles and themes in the movie applied to me. But you felt like you were this, you know, member of society that was wasn't appreciated and didn't know what you wanted. So it, you you didn't go out and act like they did in the film, but you felt like it was something where you could relate to it, and like that was almost like you lived out your own personal Tyler Durden by watching the film. And not only personally was it relatable for a lot of people and, and, and had an impact, but when you look at its influence on cinema in a lot of different ways, it was you know recognized as an innovator. Um, and a lot of the style it used uh, throughout the shooting and, uh, of, of the film, it was a lot of new developments in filmmaking technology uh, that they used at the time. It very much so, yeah. They... Uh, it- one of the things that makes me think of is the visual effects at the big, especially during the title sequence, like mm. um, how it sucks you right into the movie. It does. Uh, and the, it, it was very ingenious how they did that. It's, it's very creative that they actually hired like a medical illustrator or something to help map out the neural network of someone's brain. It's like, it was a lot of thought went into it and, 
uh, you know, when they show the bombs um, that are rigged for all the, the, the credit card buildings, uh, those cuts that they would show is it, it did have a lot of influence on the style of the 2000s film. Kind of how we talked about earlier, you made the point that the reason it feels like it was a movie made in that the 2000s, the aughts decade is because of what it inspired and the films that copied catted off of it that came out in that decade. Yeah, it really was. A lot of films have certainly uh, uh, stolen from it, and, and that's what they, as Marlon Brando says, said, uh, the, the, you know, the greats steal from other greats. Um, one of the big legacy things of this film, though, and we talked about the quotes of the movie, is the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. That was voted as the 27th greatest movie line in 2007 by Premier Magazine. Um, <clears throat> and not only is it functional to the plot, but it reminds people who have seen the movie, not to spoil it for someone that hasn't. I, I didn't think about it taken into that context, but that makes sense. You know, it kind of is speaking to the characters in the film, but the audience as well. Hey, don't talk about this. And I guess we're breaking that first rule by doing this episode here. Uh, but you know, I think the statute of limitations is worn off. You know, also uh, speaking about, you know, different uh, parts of the movie that are, that are ranked or considered, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> a great part of the film. Tyler Durden was voted the eighth greatest movie character uh, by Empire Magazine. Um, and in 2003, it was listed as, and we talked about it being a great guy movie, it was listed as one of the best guy movies of all time. It was made the top 50 best guy movie of all time list. Uh, very easy to see that. The Tyler Durden is the eighth best great character wow that's that that one actually is kind of surprising there's been a lot of great characters in movies but yeah I, I don't necessarily agree with that but it just shows that you know it's all subjective at the end of the day what people's feelings are about the film but it does show that uh the movie is quite beloved by uh, a, a a large portion of moviegoers out there and you can't talk about you know this film with, uh, without talking about some of its real life influences, maybe more so on the negative side. But you know because it was one of the most controversial talked about film of the '90s. But as we talked about, it was a concern when it came out. You know, like there would be imitation crimes or acts committed, uh, like with Clockwork Orange that transpired. And it's the same. You know, the real there were real fight clubs that were started in the U.S. Um, there was a gentleman's fight club in Menlo Park in California in the year 2000, <clears throat> and most of it was members from the tech industry. Uh, there were teens and preteens in Texas, New Jersey, Washington, Alaska that initiated fight clubs and posted videos of their fights online, uh, leading to authorities to break up the club. Uh, there were also ones at Princeton University in Arlington, Texas. And, um, and even in 2009, it, that re, uh, you know, ten, what, 10 years after the movie came out, a 17-year-old uh, uh, formed a fight club in Manhattan, and he detonated a homemade bomb outside of Starbucks on the Upper East Side trying to emulate Project Mayhem. Fucking dumbass. Yeah, God. stupid. So it, it, that is one of the unfortunate things is sometimes people take things a little too literal. I mean, if anything, if you watch this movie, it's a, a, a lesson of what not to do, of how you don't want to do that. Uh, right, it's a cautionary tale. It's exactly. like if you come away from this movie wanting to make those decisions, you weren't paying attention. You missed the point entirely. There hasn't been any really continuances of the property in the film format, unfortunately. Uh, they haven't rebooted it or remade it, surprisingly. Uh, however, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, the writer, author of the first book, Fight Club, did write and publish a Fight Club 2 that came out in 2016. Well, I, well, you're blowing my mind here. I had no idea that this actually happened. What, what, 
What was it about? I mean, well, just... it's wasn't. Uh, it was a dud. Oh, In fact, okay. it's it's uh, not well was not well received. As was the video game that came out in 2004 was a complete disaster. So uh, the two follow-up properties to this film, neither one were of any substance or quality, unfortunately. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's disappointing. But I wonder if it was by design, you know, the, especially for the video game. You know, just trust to appeal to consumers but it'd actually be shit just to get people to spend their money but who knows yeah and 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 i think it sums up best when roger ebert said this about fight club fight club is a thrill ride masquerading as philosophy the kind of ride where some people puke and others can't wait to get on again (laughs) i'm gonna put myself in the ladder well that is gonna do it for this episode of replay value thank you so much for listening please rate and subscribe if you haven't already uh that does help us out a ton and and we really we really appreciate it remember to download new episodes every other tuesday thanks again we'll see you next time bye Bye.